Look, I'm sorry I cut you off like that before. I've just never gone in for that psychological mumbo-jumbo. You show you a bunch of ink blots and ask you about your toilet habits? Oh, why does everything with you shrink start in the crotch? And that's from Fraser, and that's his dad. And, you know, when I went to school... We studied inkblots, we studied Freudian therapy, we studied behavioral therapy, and you may not know what those are, but pretty much something else came on the scene and just took off. And that's a new type of therapy. It's actually not new anymore. It's cognitive therapy. And with me today is Dr. Jeff Riggenbach, a cognitive therapist in the state of Oklahoma, practicing at Laureate Psychiatric Clinic and Hospital. And he's developed their cognitive behavioral-based borderline personality disorders treatment program. And he's completed training with the Beck Institute of Cognitive Therapy, that's the gold standard, and is certified with the Academy of Cognitive Therapy, and he gives seminars, that's what I, that's where we met, on cognitive therapy, and routinely is an adjunct professor. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Hi, Ellen, thank you. Tell me, what is cognitive therapy? Sure, I mean, cognitive therapy is based upon the idea that our thoughts influence our feelings, so in essence, when we learn to change the way we think, we can change the way we feel. I mean, we all have sort of been programmed, if you will, to think in certain ways by people we were around, primarily early in life, but but also later in life. And those of us that were taught to think in ways that don't serve us well, uh, cognitive therapy kind of helps reprogram the way that we think. You know, I can remember growing up and being afraid to speak my mind. You could speak your mind on some things, but on other things, I just knew it's better to just shut up. So I trained myself over the years to hold in stuff. So what would cognitive therapy do for me? Well, Ellen, that is one of the messages that I think a lot of send, that it's not okay to share your feelings or it's not okay to talk about certain topics or it's more important how things look on the outside than how things really are. And so uh, that's uh, kind of a message that a lot of people have internalized over the years. And one of the things that I think is important is recognizing that uh, what serves people well in one context doesn't always serve them well in another context. For instance, keeping our mouth shut uh, in an environment in which we might be put down or belittled or or maybe even hurt if we opened it uh, Mm -hmm. was probably best in that environment, but that that isn't necessary once we get out of that environment. And actually, is it not only necessary, but sometimes it can be harmful not to be able to express feelings when we're talking about in relationships or in work conflicts or those sorts of things. So I think that's one of the first steps is recognizing that that old behavior that was learned as a result of a way that we were taught to think um, isn't necessary, and not only is it not necessary anymore, it, sometimes it's not helpful. And I yeah. think that's a first step. And in one sense, it's not that we're taught. It's that we as kids come up with different coping strategies. It can happen in very good families that you don't know how to express yourself, and not every mother and dad, very well-meaning par- uh, parents, um, many of them don't have the parenting skills to be able to encourage their kids to speak their minds, but to do it properly. No, you're right about that. And, and I mean, as children, we, we take things differently. Uh, there may be a, a number of different factors. Uh, but a lot of messages can be received just because in terms of communication, just because we receive a message doesn't mean that's the message that our parent or whoever the sender of the message was intending to send. Uh, You're absolutely right about that. So some people come out of families that are 
really pretty loving families and, and really caring and, and want the best for them, uh, but still develop certain ways of coping. And yet still feel repressed. Now, obviously, I'm not repressed anymore. And one of the <laughs> things that helped me enormously, guess what it is? Cognitive therapy. Wow, I didn't <laughs> and know just, that. And it's not that I went to cognitive therapy, but one of the benefits of becoming a therapist is what? What do we learn? We learn wonderful skills. Yeah, you really do learn a lot of skills uh, in terms of managing your own life. And that's one of the things that I really like about cognitive therapy, Ellen, is just really practical skills that really anybody can use to manage our lives from day to day. I mean, certainly it's helpful for people with more serious mental conditions, but uh, the skills from cognitive therapy can be helpful for every single one of us managing our day-to-day lives. So let's say that I'm planning a vacation with my kids and I'm really anxious because there's so much to do and I'm trying to please my husband. I'm trying to make everybody's make sure everybody's needs are met. How could I use cognitive therapy? Well, actually, as you mentioned that, I'm thinking about uh, a lady that I worked with not too long ago who had that exact scenario, maybe not the vacation, but just really feeling like she had to to please her parents, actually her mother specifically, and, and to please her husband and to please her children. And one of the things that she came to learn was that uh, by not saying no to her children, which was making things easier for her in the moment, and she thought was really doing them a favor, uh, she was able to recognize wasn't doing them any favors, or at least wasn't going to in the long run. We actually had her in a group situation where she was able to hear from other people who were raised in ways that their parents didn't set any limits or didn't tell them no, and hear from other parents in the group and uh, hear how their experiences really impacted negatively. And so although at that point she didn't have a a good enough self-esteem to really care how it affected her, uh, she was able to see how not saying no to them uh, actually was hurting them. And so that was a bigger motivator for her. And uh, and, uh, she was initially feeling real anxious or bummed out. How do you get to the thought level with her as a cognitive therapist? Well, I mean, you want to start with, well, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Uh, A lot of times if she comes in presenting anxious, which this lady did, Mm -hmm. uh, and actually her uh, initial complaint was not being able to get out in public and not being able to go around people and those kind of things. So I would want to kind of feel her out and see exactly what her fear was. Mm-hmm. about going out in public, because people have different reasons for not wanting to do that. I mean, some people are afraid they're going to contract a physical disease. Some people are afraid they're going to get hurt mm-hmm. or be mugged or something like that. And some people are concerned that somebody might see them with their hair not done, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. it, we're afraid of what other people would think of them. So the first thing I would want to do is find out exactly what her reasons were for not wanting to do the thing she was afraid of and identify some of the specific thoughts and go from there with her. Okay, so you really want to get to the thought level. One of the key factor, one of the key, um, with cognitive therapy, you don't want to just talk, let people talk and talk and talk. You want them to identify what are the thoughts underlying your feelings. If you're anxious, what are your anxiety-provoking thoughts? What are your dep- the thoughts that are making you feel depressed? Um, and so you always want to get to the level of the thoughts, correct? Yeah, that's right. And then you want to see if the thoughts are accurate, reality-based or not. 
Yeah, that's right. And, yeah. and first of all, a lot of people, Ellen, have a difficult time really recognizing what is the thought versus what is the feeling. And that's one of the things that cogn- I know we're right at the end of time. I know there's a wonderful book, Mind Over Mood, that helps people see the difference between thoughts and feelings. Am I right with that, that Jeff? Is, that is an excellent book. That's yeah. a good one to go to. Okay. And thank you so much for joining us today. And I look forward to talking with you again soon. Thanks a lot, Ellen. And I have a review of that book on my website. My website is drkenner.com, D-R-K-E-N-N-E-R.com. And I've got other books I recommend and articles you can read. I need to feel important. Instead, I'm living in the shadows of her life. Her family and friends are everything. I feel invisible. I thought my husband's love would be enough to help him get over my affairs. Why can't he just forgive and forget? What does he think he is? Perfect? He's so selfish. How many lose themselves in a romantic relationship, feeling unimportant, taken for granted? Or perhaps they lie or cheat and think their partner should forgive and forget. I am Dr. Ellen Kenner, clinical psychologist and co-author with Dr. Edwin Locke of the Romance Guidebook, The Selfish Path to Romance. Provocative title? I know. By selfish, we mean the self-valuing, self nurturing way to romance. You never want to lose yourself in a relationship. You want to create a win-win partnership to value your own and each other's goals and dreams. Discovering how to be true to yourself in a romantic partnership is learnable and key to romantic happiness. Check out our book with its daring title, The Selfish Path to Romance, at Amazon or SelfishRomance.com.